Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. This is session number four of the War of the Jewels. I've been having a little, some uh, winter adventures recently. We just got a major snowstorm up here in New Hampshire where I am. And um, I was out of power for about 30 hours in, over the last two days. But uh, power came back in plenty of time to be able to uh, be with you here this evening. So I was very... Um, very glad. Yeah, I don't really suspect Saruman, actually, JJ. I think that's, uh, I think that's, uh, I think that's quite wrong. I think uh, the more people just suspected of being Saruman, the more you're just going to tick off the mountains, you know, who are trying, you know, to draw attention to themselves. Um, <laughs> but anyway, um, hey, I wanted to uh, uh, draw attention to uh, a, a, a couple quick things. First of all, um, I wanted to um, uh, mention, of course, uh, it is Sunshine Moot this week. We have uh, the next of our spring moots coming up here. Uh, <laughs> this week is feeling like a grand week uh, to go down to Florida, I have to admit. Um, so um, uh, anyway, yeah, so we're... Um, uh, we're going to be down in Orlando, Florida, this coming Saturday on March 18th, um, and you can still there's still uh, time for folks to join us if you're in the area and want to join us uh, in uh, Orlando. Well, it's not actually quite in Orlando; it's a little bit nearby. Um, and um, uh, but you, or you can also, of course, join us remotely as this moot, as all of our moots uh, will be a hybrid moot. So. Um, Anyhow, so that's one thing to remind folks of. Another thing, um, at the Signum Press this week, uh, we just released a significant thing. Um, a new publication from Verlin Flieger, who is, you know, if any of you don't know the work of Verlin Flieger, you should. Verlin Flieger is like the matriarch of Tolkien studies. Uh, she is, um, you know, has been the editor and publisher of a number of Tolkien's own works that have been published over the course of the last 15, you know, 20 years. Um, she has published herself extensively on Tolkien for a long time. She's actually the, f as I believe, the first one, I think she was the first person to get her PhD by writing her dissertation on Tolkien. Um, she is, oh, Splintered Light is a classic of hers, Emily, one of the classics of uh, of Tolkien scholarship. Anyway, Verlin Flieger is just a, a, a stupendous Tolkien scholar uh, and an even more wonderful person. And she uh, has published her latest book with the Signum University Press. Um, it is a collection of uh, essays and short stories and poems as well, including uh, among her poetry in particular, um, uh, a, a lot of very personal reflections on the death of her husband. Um, very, um, very moving, uh, very vulnerable stuff there. Um, so Verlin Flieger is just, she's such a wonderful person. Um, uh, and uh, I just, I'm very honored uh, that we are able to uh, publish this book of hers, um, A Waiter Made of Glass. So if you go to Signum University Press, you can find the information on the release of that book today um, or yesterday. Anyway, in the last couple of days, we've just released it. So wanted to definitely, I encourage you to look into that. In addition, I am... Um, 
uh, I have been... I'm just... What is today? Today's the 15th. So today is the day... Sorry, all the time I've been out of uh, power and therefore half cut off from the world uh, for the last day and a half. I keep losing track even of the day. Um, But um, today being the 15th of the month, uh, that is... uh, I almost said February. I can't even know. I, it's, I should know at least what month it is. Um, being the 15th of March today, um, today is the day that the second chapter of my, uh, of my book dropped. So, of course, as many of you know, I am writing my new book, Exploring the Lord of the Rings. Um, this is the long-awaited follow-up of my Hobbit book, Exploring the Hobbit. And, um, you know, this book is really, you know, I'm, um, you know, when I am done with the whole thing, you know, exploring the Lord of the Rings, which is going to be in six volumes because I'm writing, uh, I'm, I'm publishing one book on each of the six books of the Lord of the Rings. Um, and when that, when this six volume collection is done, this is going to be pretty much my magnum opus. This is going to be, you know, sort of all of my thoughts on, or at least the significant majority of my thoughts on the Lord of the Rings. Um, uh, you know, over the course of my career. So, um, really, uh, I, and I've been having such a ball, uh, writing this. I'm working on the prologue. My first three chapters, uh, are discussing Tolkien's prologue. Uh, and so the second chapter, the second of my prologue chapters, uh, was released today. Um, and that was, uh, I, I just, I've been, uh, I've been having so much fun. Uh, the folks in my author circle, that is my sort of uh, my insider uh, support group, um, uh, you know, who have been uh, my patrons and uh, really helping me through this whole process, um, have been helping me with my revision. And I just, uh, you know, got, I did a revision I was so happy with, was really excited about how chapter two came together. So that chapter just dropped today in the serial release Um model that we have at the Signum University Press so that you can follow along um, and read the chapters as they drop um, for a subscription of only two bucks a month. So um, anyway, that the so my second chapter dropped today. Um, I'm going to be my third and final chapter on the prologue is going to be next time. My third chapter is going to be on. Um, so in my second chapter, I talked about concerning hobbits, and I was looking at the patterns that we can see in what Tolkien tells us about hobbits, like what he emphasizes when he explains and sort of sets up hobbit culture for us, and in particular, the way he goes back and looks at hobbit history. And then I did a lot of thinking about how um, how his presentation of hobbits and their history dovetails with the framework that he establishes in the prologue, um, in which he is claiming that the history of the Shire is actual history and part of our real world and that hobbits still exist today and are connected to and related to us as modern humans. Um, so, um, anyway, so I was sort of bringing that stuff together, uh, in chapter two. Um, and, uh, and then we, um, uh, and, and now in chapter three, what I'm, what I'm, uh, finalizing this month is, a discussion of Tolkien's summary of The Hobbit that we get, which is, spoiler, not actually a summary of The Hobbit. Uh, so um, anyway, um, I would. Uh, 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 that's that's been that's been great fun. So if you want to be, uh, you know, kind of part of 
this experience as my as I'm working through the book and as I'm rolling out the chapters, um, I encourage you to go to the Signum University Press uh, page, press.signumuniversity.org, and um, uh, look into the, uh, you know, you can find my author page and then look at our subscription model, which, as I say, is uh, two bucks a month uh, to subscribe to the ongoing chapters as they're released. So um, those are some of the many things that are going on here at Signum uh, and uh, uh, happy to share those things with you. Now, let's get back to the text, The War of the Jewels. So in real time, uh, for those of you who are uh, who are with me uh, live, it's been several weeks um, since uh, we have been able to meet. Um, so let's try to remember uh, where we were. We had just gotten to the place um, we got to the end of the Grey Annals. That is, well, we're still in the section of the book of the War of the Jewels called the Grey Annals, um, but we're done with the part that's like the actually Grey part. That is the part that's uh, uh, you know imaginatively ascribed um, to the uh, to the Sindar themselves. I think there are still some memories of that as we move forward, but um, but it seems clear and he makes some, uh, you know, it's not only just to do with where he is in the drafting. Um, that is like the, the, we got to the end of the version where he was really doing that. Um, but in addition, you can see that the, the ground sort of shifts that instead of following the perspective of the Sindar throughout and giving us their side of the story, um, it now has shifted to a more Noldoran standpoint. So um, we're in the middle of a bunch of uh, passages that jumped out at me uh, because it's it's inter- it's always fascinating for me to see what directions Tolkien's mind is going as he is rewriting as he is reworking um, some of these things um, and yeah it is um, it is tricky um, yeah I see you know it says I feel like I need to completely reread the Silmarillion yeah that's really easy. Um, it's really easy to feel to 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 feel that way um, when doing when reading through stuff like the War of the Jewels. Um, I I find myself saying, "Gosh, what, that's that you know that feels really familiar." Is that in the Silmarillion? Then I'm like, "Oh wait, no, that's in another version that we talked about before." And then sometimes I'll get, now get myself confused and forget. Like, okay, wait, is the is this thing in the published Silmarillion, or is this just in one of these other versions? Um, it's easy to get kind of um, uh, kind of turned around. Um, but um, uh, but anyway, as I say, the the there are a couple things that I'm really interested in tracing that I'm always really interested in tracing as we're going through, um, you know, these texts, which are the, the unfolding drafts of the story as Tolkien is working on them. One, as we've been focusing on since the very first session of the war of the jewels, uh, uh, discussion has been the, the place that this holds in like what we can see based on the texts that we're looking at what we can see about how Tolkien is understanding. Uh, like, in other words, what does he think he's doing? What exactly does Tolkien think he's doing? Um, we're still in the early stages um, of the post-Lord of the Rings period. So we're still in that point in the 50s when he was reworking stuff and, it, and when he was rewriting materials with the explicit idea 
that he was going, that he was, you know, it was a drive to get this published, right? So this is, this material that we're reading is still stuff that he hoped, thought, believed, um, was likely uh, to get to press sometime soon, which is different from what we'll see when we get to the stuff that he wrote later on, like in 1959, 1960, uh, and later up through like 1965. Um, The same time as a lot of the stuff from the nature of Middle Earth. So by then, he had already given up on that. So after The Lord of the Rings is published um, without the Silmarillion, um, then he has uh, he has shifted gears. So that's the one question. What does Tolkien think he's doing? And what can we learn about that from, uh, from looking at some of these things? But then just secondly, how do we see, how do we see the story developing? What, um, what can we learn about what Tolkien is seeing, what Tolkien is learning, the, um, the direction in which things are going as he's making changes based on what he's uh, based on what he's written before. And one of the important things to keep in mind, um, it's been a long time since, especially for those of you who have been following me along in real time. I know some of you might have been doing some catch up more recently, um, asynchronously. And so it might be fresher to you than it is to me. Um, but the discussions that we had of, say, I'm looking up at my bookshelf here, of, say, The Shaping of Middle-Earth or The Lost Road was quite some time ago now. Um, it was more than, what, six, seven years or so, real time, um, since we had those discussions. Um, I have to admit, I mean, I was getting off the shelf the Quentin Olderinwa from The Shaping of Middle-Earth and um, the waiter Quintus Silmarillion from, you know, the 1937 Quintus Silmarillion, um, which is which you can find in uh, uh, in The Lost Road um, and kind of thumbing through that as I was reading the passages this week um, from The War of the Jewels. And I was like, boy, that feels like a long time ago. <laughs> it feels very, very strange. But the thing that I was noticing, what I was going back to look for, the reason I was pulling these books down off the shelves and comparing, was it occurred to me as I was reading the Nearnith, the Nearnith or Noidiad stuff. I was like, wait a second. When was the last time Tolkien wrote this stuff? How long has it been since Tolkien got this far in the story? Because we're getting pretty significant. I mean, once you get up to the Baron and Luthien story and beyond the Baron and Luthien story, you're getting into some some rarefied air in terms of uh, Tolkien finishing stuff, right? He rewrites the early stuff quite frequently, but to actually get so far as the Near Nith Arnodiad, now that is something, right? Um, and it turns out I was right. What I was trying to remember, I was like, did he get to it in the 1937 Quintus Silmarillion revision? Um, and no, he didn't get to it then. Um, he, the, the material that we were reading through this week is stuff that he's not really written new material of, you know, he's, he's not really gone over in detail and rewritten it since 1930 or even 1928, um, the original 1928 sketch of the mythology. So just brief, bri- briefly recalling um, from a few sessions back. So you'll remember it was the sketch of the mythology that he did in 1928. That was the original, I'm going to write a plot summary of the, you know, the first age story um, so that 
my colleague to whom I am going to lend um, the alliterative Children of Hurin can have some context for what he's reading, right? Um, and so he, 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 you know, he called it the sketch of the mythology, uh, um, and it was designed to be a sort of synopsis. Um, and it is fairly short, but it's, it depends on your point of view. Compared to the published Silmarillion, it's pretty short. Uh, for a, here's a little background reading on this long epic poem I'm, asking, I'm, I'm, I'm letting you read. It's pretty long, right? Um, as a preamble, it's pretty long. But, um, but he sketched out pretty much the whole story there in the sketch of the mythology in 1928. And then in 1930, in the Quentin Olderinwa, he expanded it. So that's the moment in 1930 when he was like, hey, that was fun. I actually kind of like that model, that plot summary model, right? And so that's when he leans into that in the Quentin Olderinwa and then further in the 1937 Quentin Silmarillion. But, um, but, but getting up here, past Baron Luthien, um, is... It's, he he is something is is stuff he hasn't really done since he got to um, uh, since like 1930 or even 1928. Um, so this is there's a reason why um, so much of what we're reading in this is very familiar, right? A lot of the published Silmarillion is taken straight from the Grey Annals that we're reading right now, um, because remember Christopher Tolkien's approach, like his, his editorial process in choosing what versions of what texts make it into the published version was simply, well, there's a bunch of provisos, but it's basically the latest full version that his father wrote of the story. I say full version because if he like sketched ideas for what he wanted to do with it, but he didn't write it, Christopher didn't include it, even though he knew that, you know, that Tolkien wanted to change the story and had decided firmly, I'm going to take the story in these new ways. But if he didn't write it, Christopher's like, I'm not writing it myself, right? I'm only going to include here completed texts written by my father. Um, with only a couple places where he, Christopher had in desperation to connect dots. Um, but, um, uh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, uh, David Michael Roberts says the sketch of the mythology uh, in, in vol which is in volume four, the shaping of Middle Earth, is thirty pages long. Yeah, exactly. It's uh, um, again short compared to the published Silmarillion, but kind of long if you got that handwritten from a friend, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, anyhow, so there are two things that we learn from the fact that so much of what we're reading here in the Grey Annals is the material that Christopher ended up choosing for the published Silmarillion. One, of course, is that, um, you know, these are full, late-ish, later than the early stuff, right, um, renditions of this stuff, but it's also a kind of warning, right? There's, um, for me, there's a little, there's a little sadness in finding, like, it's always kind of fun to come across passages in the history of Middle-earth which are identical to the published Silmarillion. Right? Um, it's fun because it's almost like a scavenger hunt. Right? Like, oh, hey, look, I found the source of that paragraph, uh, you know, that I, that I remember in the published Silmarillion. But there's always a, a tinge of sadness to it for me because 
when you're reading a passage of text that is identical to the published Silmarillion, what that probably means is Tolkien is not ever in his lifetime going to get back to writing this story again, right? Um, that's why those of you who did the discussion with me um, from from way back, from uh, from Volume 4, from The Shaping of Middle-Earth, will remember that the Quentin Alderinwa version of um, The Fall of Gondolin is the text that's used in the published Silmarillion because uh, he never got back to it again, ever. Um, not to finish it. Again, see, there's that's a classic example. We have the, you know, the, the, the tour stuff, the beginning, the tour fragment uh, that's published in Unfinished Tales, um, but it's not finished, so Christopher didn't include it in the published Silmarillion. Anyway, um, yeah, so we're seeing Tolkien returning to stories that he's not rewritten for a long time and by dint of their familiarity we can tell that he's for many of them never going to get back to them again um, and that's um, well it's interesting as I say it's both um, it's both fun and also a little bit sad um, but um Anyway, so let's, so today we're going to go through, oh, so yeah, I keep um, forgetting uh, what I'm, uh, the point I keep coming back around to from the introduction, uh, from my introduction here, and that is um, what, we're, what we're seeing, I think, one of the things that we see in this stretch, you know, we were focusing on the early parts of the Grey Annals, which were that really fascinating imaginative experiment, which is framed as here's the Sindar perspective on things. We're past that bit. Um, and it seems to me that what we're getting is the story merely sort of drawing him along, right? Um, drawing Tolkien along um, you'll remember that one of the questions I've been asking as we've going through the annals is what I can't, what, what does he think he's doing? What does Tolkien imagine this text to be? Um, originally, the annals were designed to accompany the Quenta. The Quenta Silmarillion with the Quenta Noldorinwa then changed to the Quenta Silmarillion that was supposed to be the overall narrative, right? Like the overview narrative of, of the history. Then he started doing the annals, which seemed at first to just be an accompaniment, right? Let's just kind of try to keep the chronology straight so that you can have like a chronolo chronological reference to look at while you're reading the Quinta, right? But they're both going to get included because um, they're not like redundant or anything, right? But as he keeps going further and further into the annals, they seem to be getting more and more redundant, right? Um, they are continuously expanding and really becoming, which is, and like, and we see that their destiny, right? Their destiny is to be taken by Christopher out of the annals and placed in the Quintus Omerillion in the published version, right? So um, it's pretty clear 
that in Christopher's assessment, these two things, the annals on the one hand and the quenta on the other hand, are really kind of merging together and in the end kind of doing the same thing. Um, so I'm always so the this, the passages that I've selected here are ones that um, that do one of those two things that they that either give us an interesting little glimpse into what Tolkien thinks he's doing and how he's framing this text, or it gives us an interesting glimpse into how the story is evolving, what it's changing from and what it's changing to as he's revising. So I'm particularly interested. I always love most. Um, you may remember um, when we were doing the history of the Lord of the Rings, the Return of the Shadow, the Treason of Isengard, the War of the Ring, um, we were... I was, I was, my favorite parts of those books are his, um, uh, his, his projected notes, right? His outlines of where the story was going to go next. It was so fascinating to see what he thought he was doing, right? Um, how he was planning things and then to watch what actually happened. And of course it was fun because we already knew what he was going to end up doing, right? And so we could see we could see it from the from from the first moment that he says, "All right, I'm going to make my projections. You know, I'm going to I'm going to sketch ahead. Here's what I think is going to happen," um, and we already knew what was actually going to happen, right? And so we could see the trend, the direction, how it what you know, um, you know, he talks about the story growing in the telling. How did it grow, right? Where did what you know what was the before and what was the after? I always love that. So those those plot outlines were always my favorite part of the history of the Lord of the Rings. Uh, my favorite moments in these sections, like in the War of the Jewels, in the Grey Annals, what we're reading, is when he actually crossed things out. Um, when we see him cross things out and replace it with something else, I love those passages. Because again, there we can see directions, right? What was he first thinking and what did he shift it to? And what does that shift tell us? And, and sometimes, even when it's just one word, it's interesting, right? And we can't, you know, we can't draw, we can't build a, an enormous structure of interpretation on the changing of a single word, but we can take it as one datum, right? And we can use that, combine that with other data and really begin to see patterns of how Tolkien's story is growing um, and changing. So anyhow, let's, um, let's look at some of these examples here. All right. So let's start off with... The shift in the matter of Maeglin. Um, chalk this in the category of stuff that I would not even have noticed had it not been for the nature of Middle-earth. If not for the fact that we took a break uh, to read the nature of Middle-earth as soon as it came out, um, I would never have noticed the significance of this. But it was really fun to notice this, having come from the nature of Middle-earth uh, and what was revealed in that. Okay, so... We get a rejected annal for the year 47, 471. In this year, Isfin the White, sister of Turgon, wearying of the city and desiring to look again upon Fingon her brother, went from Gondolin against the will and counsel of Turgon, and she strayed into Brethil and was lost in the dark forest. There Aeol, the dark elf, who abode in the forest, found her and took her to wife. In the depths of the wood he lived and shunned the sun, desiring only the starlight of old, for so he had dwelt since the first finding of Beleriand, and took no part in all the deeds of his kin. Okay, and then that's changed 
uh, to year 316. 471 before 316 now. So for, actually, before we even get, get into the paragraph, you um, uh, you see the so uh, uh, fellow nature of Middle Earth scholars, um, you you remember uh, the significance here? Why the biggest change that he makes? These two paragraphs are pretty similar. I mean, there's some differences which we're going to look at in a second, but um, but by far the biggest change that he makes is he shifts. He shifts the time, like radically shifts the time. The thing that he had originally plotted in at year 471, he's like, no, I got to push that back to 316. And like I said, I wouldn't even have, I, I may not even have, I mean, I might have noticed the difference in the years, but I wouldn't have thought anything of it, right? And now all of a sudden I'm like, oh, yeah, of course. David Michael, exactly. It's all about the aging rates. It's all about the aging rates. Remember that Myglin is the problem child, in more than one sense, of course, but Myglin was the problem child of Tolkien's entire world-building experiment at this point, as he was beginning to really flesh out what is the growth ratio between humans and elves, the growth and maturation uh, ratio between elves and humans. He basically sort of realized that his initial outline, the way that he had originally written things, year 471, that doesn't. That only gives Myglin like twenty years to mature before all of a sudden he's supposed to be, you know, um, you know, macking on Idril in Gondolin, right, and being creepy. Um, and he was like, "That's no, we can't. That can't be." So he had to push it back in order to give Myglin time to grow up. Myglin was the most time critical. Because every other elf, is that true? You will notice a pattern in my speech. Whenever I'm talking spontaneously like this and I catch myself using the words always, every, or never in a sentence, I often pause immediately afterwards. And that's just me doing my, is this true? I'm just making a pretty sweeping, sweeping statement right here. So, yes, I believe it is true that every other elf who takes a significant role in the stories of the Silmarillion um, at least could potentially have been born in Valinor or earlier on. That is, the dates of their conception don't create a bound for their ages. Um, so with everybody else, he's able to fudge. He's got much more fudge factor built in when he's trying to figure out the aging rates and stuff. Almost everybody else, like Galadriel, lots of fudge factor. She's born in Valinor at some point, right? Um, and exactly when is fungible, right? Um, but um, but Myglen, his conception is part of the story. And it's a story that doesn't happen until not just they're in Beleriand, but they have to have been in Beleriand. I mean, Gondolin has to exist already. And that doesn't happen straight away, right? So he had some serious plot constraints um, uh, involved in the Myglin story. And so Myglin was the most um, uh, challenging, the most difficult story to reconcile with the world building that he was trying to do in figuring out um, the elvish uh, 
the elvish aging rates. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so David Michael, um, yeah, I didn't, I also did not notice the not wholly unwilling line. Um, there are several things that we can see there. One thing I would remind, um, I'd remind folks of, this is a trend that we had noticed when we were reading the early material, when we were reading the annals um, of Amon and stuff in, um, in Morgoth's Ring. So remember that Morgoth's Ring and the War of the Jewels, although they're sequential in the History of Middle-earth series, remember they're not sequential chronologically, right? He didn't like write the uh, Morgoth's Ring stuff and then write the War of the Jewels stuff. The War of the Jewels stuff and the Morgoth's Ring stuff are the same stuff um, written at the same times in the same bunches of times, right? Um, it's just that between volume 10 and 11, uh, Christopher has distinguished them by subject matter, right? Um, this, the Balerian stuff and the Valinor stuff. I did that backwards. The Valinor stuff in Morgoth's Ring, the Balerian stuff in War of the Jewels, um, rather than by the chronology of their composition by Tolkien. So, in other words, what that means is some of the trends that we were noticing were happening through the writing of the, the revision of the Silmarillion material from Amon that we were reading in, in Morgoth's Ring. That Those trends are, are going to be relevant because they're happening at the same time here, right? So you may remember that one of the trends that we were looking at that I was very interested in uh, in Morgoth's Ring when we were reading the Amon material was his noticeable beefing up of women. Not just the number of women. Like, this is the moment when, like, all the wives and sisters get added in. And we find out, like, that, um, you know, Fingolfin had daughters. I mean, like, like it's there, there's, there's a whole bunch of things that we learn, right? Um, uh, so... Yeah, yeah. Um, no, wait. I'm sorry. I'm thinking of Finway. That Finway had daughters. Anyway, um, anyway. The point is, all these girls start showing up, and not just women who are being mentioned, but also he goes back and he keeps beefing and he starts beefing up their roles, and disc- and sort of talking about them differently. Um, and you know, I started to notice it, and I was like. Uh, I was hesitant at first when I began noticing the pattern in Morgoth's ring. And the reason I was hesitant is that I'm always hesitant when, when I'm seeing what appears to me at first like evidence to support a modern interest. That is, the, the number of female characters in Tolkien's writing and the roles that female characters play in Tolkien's writings, that is very much a modern focus, right? Like, many, many people in the last 20 years, you know, have been very focused on that question. Um, and so knowing that like, anything that we are kind of obsessed about, but I don't have, you know, clear contemporary evidence to think that Tolkien himself was 
obsessed about it too. I'm always a little hesitant because it's it's very easy to end up taking our own interests, the questions that we find really interesting, and read them back into and like assume that Tolkien was fascinated, was interested in those same questions too. And so it felt like that to me. I was like, well, okay, we are interested in the question of female characters in Tolkien. Did he really think about it that much? I mean, is there action? Are we? Is what we're seeing actually evidence that Tolkien did have a moment? in his writing where he was like, you know what? I've neglected the female characters. I should rectify that. I mean, that's interesting. Um, and like, you know, it would be cool if that were true, but it was almost like too cool. If you know what I mean? <laughs> like, so I was, I was hesitant when I was talking about that. Um, but as we, um, as we were looking at it more and more, um, as we were continuing to explore Morgoth's ring, it kept coming up again and again. And I became convinced. I think, I think it's actually a thing. I think it's real. Um, I think that in this phase, in this period, um, though I'm not sure in retrospect, whether it was necessarily in the early fifties period, like this, this initial phase after the writing of the Lord of the Rings or in the later phase, I think it might've been the later phase. We'll have to see if we see any more of this here moving forward. But um, um, but in any case, in the post-Lord of the Rings period, there did seem to be a trend here. So all of this, um, this entire digression, um, uh, David Michael Roberts, is your fault. Um, <laughs> you were pointing about that not wholly unwilling line. Um, one of the things that we were seeing... Um, was were allusions to Arathel. Um, I believe after her name was changed from Isfin to Arathel, um, which inclines me to believe this is still early. This is still the you know that first phase, after, po po first post Lord of the Rings phase um, that we're reading, and so she's still Isfin the White. Her name will change to Arathel mm -hmm. a little bit later on. I'm just teasing you, David Michael. You didn't do anything wrong. Um, I just like to be able to blame other people when I digress. Um, but um, so I think it was when her name changes to Arthel that he comes and he beefs up the story from her perspective, right? Um, gives us more of her own experience there. Um, so I would guess, I would guess that that might be that that might be um, um, that might be part of that. Anyhow. Um, Okay, now let's read the paragraph and look at some of the directions, uh, some of the specific things that he's um, that he's looking at. Yes, like things like "I am your sister, not your servant." Well, actually, hang on, David Michael, just stepping back a, a moment, giving her lines. She gets no lines here, right? We don't know what she was thinking. All we're told is that she uh, was wearying of the city, right? We get this one, this one participial phrase. Right, Isfin the White, sister of Turgon, wearying of the city and desiring to look again upon Fingon, her brother, went from Gondolin against the will and counsel of Turgon. Right, like what is she thinking? What's going on? So yes, the 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 the, the conversation that we get between Turgon and Arathel, in which she ta she says things like, "I am your sister, not your servant." Right, um, that's that's not here. Right, we're not we're not um, we're not getting that yet. Um, but um, Anyway, okay. As I say, let's look at the um, 
Let's do some post comparison. Tell me what you notice when he revived, apart from the change of the date. What else does he shift? Here is Finn the White, sister of Turgon, wearying of the city, went from Gondolin against the will, changed to wish, of Turgon. And she went not to Fingon, as he bade, but sought the ways to the east, to the land of Kelegorm and his brethren, her friends of old in Valinor. But she strayed from her escort in the shadows of Nen Dungorthin, and went on alone, and she came at last to Nan Elmoth. There she came into the enchantments of Aeol the Dark Elf, who abode in the wood and shunned the sun, desiring only the starlight of old. And Aeol took her to wife, and she abode with him, and no tidings of her came to any of her kin, for Aeol suffered her not to stray far, nor to fare abroad, save in the dark or the twilight. Okay. It's longer, right? That's one thing that we can notice. And that is a very simple observation, obviously, but it's significant, right? He's There's much more story there. Um, the first version, it's really just two data points, really. Isfin the White wearies of the city and leaves Gondolin. Point number one. Point number two, Aeol found her and took her to wife. And then we get a little bit of information about who Aeol was. That's it. Right? That's what we get the first time. Notice how much more story, how much more narrative we get when he comes back to it. We get more about her motivations. We get what happens to her in between. Like after she leaves and before she arrives. The business about being separated from her escort in the shadows of Nandor, Nandungorthin and going on alone. Right? Um, we get what happens to her afterwards. The taking to wife part. Suffering her ale, suffering her not to stray far, nor to fare abroad, save in the dark or the twilight. That's a new piece as well, right? So we're we're definitely getting um, getting a lot more uh, there in the uh, in the in the revised version, in the second version there. Um, but apart from the mere bulk of addition, right? The, the 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 what is the what is the direction? So first of all, I always say that I um. I like the my 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 eyes always perk up right when I see crossouts. Um, here's a fun one. He crosses out will and changes it to wish. He originally writes went from Gondolin against the will of Turgon, which of course is interesting because that's exactly what he said in the first version too. Went from Gondolin against the will and counsel of Turgon. And he changes, and then writing it the second time, he writes, went from Gondolin against the will of Turgon. Um, but then he changes will to wish. What does that suggest? Again, you have to be a little careful. You can't build elaborate structures on this kind of change, right? Um, it's very likely that if we're trying to guess, we're trying to get inside Tolkien's head and figure out exactly why he made this one word change, we're probably, you know, we're very likely to be wrong. But that doesn't mean it's not fun, uh, and it doesn't mean it's not okay to think about. We just have to, like, put it in brackets and make sure we're not making too much of it. But, um, against the will of Turgon to against the wish of Turgon. What are things that you notice about, uh, about that change. How does that how does that shift from will to wish seem to you to change the kind of tenor uh, of the of and it's important because this is this sentence this initial sentence is the like topic sentence of the whole thing 
right? This is what kind of it's the frame in a sense of the entire story that's gonna that's gonna follow. Um, JJ, yes, will is stronger and and forceful, whereas wish is more just counsel. Like he, you know, he didn't he didn't want it. Like I mean, it's this is not Turgon's plan either way, right? But it's the difference between she is going against the will of Turgon or she's just going against his wish. Is it just his preference or is it his command? Right? Um, yes, going against his will is defiance. Agreed. Whereas going against his wish is merely disappointment. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Emily, I agree. Will makes it sound more like a domestic violence situation or at least... Um, uh, domestic control, right? I mean, like, it's like he is, that you know, Turgon is asserting his will over Isfin. Now, I mean, you know, he is king, you know. Um, uh, nobody handed him a sword um, out of any body of water, uh, but still, uh, he is, he is, he is king, so there's like some excuse for his will to be law, because it kind of is, because he's sort of king. But, but, but nevertheless, you're right. It does changing from will to wish. Not only it changes the dynamics between them, it puts it into a more family dynamic situation than it does a subject defying her king kind of situation. Right? It doesn't sound anymore like she's committing treason. Exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and notice how we can almost hear a four echo of um, that line, the dialogue that she is going eventually to be given, right? I am your sister, not your servant. Um, changing will to wish is kind of in a one word alteration, kind of an assertion that she is his sister, not his servant. Um, uh yeah, yeah. Um, and yes, Marianne, of course, you are certainly right that Ale's treatment of her is certainly domestic violence. Absolutely. And notice how that gets emphasized much more, right? In the same paragraph in which the, um, the will of Turgon is made to sound less despotic, the, dis the despotism of Ale's will is elevated, right? All we learned in that first version is that... Um, she was found and taken to wife. Uh, how'd that go down? What, uh, what'd she think of that? <laughs> right. Um, now we're still not told exactly what she thought of that. You know, the extent to which, I mean, was she, is this a rape? Is this, uh, uh, is there coercion here? Is this, uh, very romantic? It's possible. I mean, like you can't just from this paragraph alone or from that first paragraph alone, I mean, we couldn't absolutely rule out. I mean, that could have, you know, the, uh, their ale, the dark elf, abode in the forest, found her and took her to wife. I mean, hey, that could be like the plot of a Disney movie for all we know, right? Not that that isn't sometimes creepy too, but you know what I mean, right? But again, notice how he doesn't change that on the one hand. He doesn't tell us about her willingness to become his wife. But what he does tell us is some circumstantial evidence of how she was treated as wife afterwards. Um... Ale suffered her not to stray far. And of course, that is such an explicit reflection of Turgon not wanting her to stray far from Gondolin, right? 
um, the the kind of uh, symmetry of Isfin's domestic situation is really emphasized in that second version of the story, isn't it? Right? Um, how she goes from a situation that she was wearying of to one which is a good deal worse. Right? Um, and notice, of course, that she's gone from... Uh, we're, not, we're not given any details about Gondolin here, but it's hard not to think that she's gone from the city of light and glory to um, now being constrained even more strongly um, and constrained to the dark and the twilight. Ail's thing for the darkness didn't sound... Shunned the sun is not a good look, right? I mean, that's... Um, that's a, no question. Uh, he shunned the sun is a red flag, right? Definitely. Makes him sound slightly orcish, right? Just just on the orcish side of things, right? But desiring only the starlight of old, that's okay, right? You know, like, I get it. Um, living in the depths of the wood, desiring only the starlight of old, right? I guess not rolling with the times, but, you know, it, you can, like, again, we're, we're left with that first paragraph kind of wondering about Ale, right? Is he a bad guy? He's a dark elf, which doesn't sound good either. But, you know, like... The darkness isn't evil, necessarily, especially the starlight of old was totally not evil. So, you know, whereas again, now that gets recontextualized. We get the same thing, who abode in the wood and shunned the sun, desiring only the starlight of old. But when that's immediately followed up with the dark or the twilight being the prison of Isfin, right? Um, uh, and it's not just that Eol is holding himself apart and taking no part in all the deeds of his kin— Maybe he's shy. He's just an introvert, right? Who are we to judge? Um, but instead now of Aeol taking no part in the deeds of his kin, now Isfin, no tidings of her came to any of her kin, right? Um, she is being kept. And, and even word of her, when she strayed from her escort and was lost alone, um, her kin is presumably worried about her, right? But... Um, he keeps news. He prevents her from returning to her kin and keeps even tidings of her from getting to her kin. And that is now in a totally different category than took no part in the deeds of his kin. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yes. Okay. Anyway. See, isn't this fun? I love passages like this. This is like when we get a whole paragraph struck out and replaced, that's like um, that's like candy. Right. Oh man. So so, but but you you see how how we can see the 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 direction in which the story is growing. Right. Um, Aeol's character is growing. Turgon's character is shifting a little bit. Isfin's character is growing substantially. Right. And that's um. That's that's fun. That's interesting. Okay. Uh, another thing. Now, this is not one of those passages where we get to passages to compare. But um, this is one instead where we get an early version of a character which is very familiar to us from the Silmarillion um, but is not nowhere yet near where that character is going to be. And this, of course, is Haleth. Haleth. Um, one of everybody's... I mean, look, 
Um, I bet you, I bet you that there are many of you, I was mentioning before the way in which so many modern readers focus on the question, because it's, it's a perfectly fair and interesting question of the representation of women in Tolkien and, and the number of female characters and stuff. And I bet you that there are many people who are listening to this broadcast right now who have had conversations on this topic with other people, um, possibly conversations on this topic with Tolkien hostile people uh, who were making sweeping claims about Tolkien being a misogynist or something. And that further, I conjecture, that many people here um, might have attempted to rebut those claims about Tolkien's misogyny or the paucity of female characters in Tolkien with salient examples from the Silmarillion, right? Have you ever said something like, well, you want female uh, characters in Tolkien, you should read the Silmarillion, okay? Because, I mean, there you got some, uh, you you want your strong female characters, right? You got a bunch of those in the Silmarillion. Um, And, of course, among those strong female characters in the Silmarillion. The character of Haleth uh, stands tall, right? I mean, she would be on the short list. Luthien, generally top of the list of strong female characters that people are interested in the Silmarillion. Um, But Haleth is uh, definitely on the short list, right? So what do we notice when the character of Haleth is invented, which this is this is the beginning. This paragraph right here is the origin of the Haleth character. Um, and Haleth is a dude, originally. In this year, Haleth the hunter came into Beleriand out of Eriador. Soon after also came Hador the golden-haired with great companies of men. Haleth remained in Syrian's vale, and his folk wandered much in hunting, owning allegiance to no prince. But their dwellings were deep in the forest of Brethel, between Tiglin and Syrian, where none before had dwelt because of the greatness and darkness of the trees. Hador, hearing there was room and need of folk in Hithlam, and being come of a Northland people, became a vassal of Fingolfin, and he strengthened greatly the armies of the king, and he was given wide lands in Hithlam, in the country of Dorloman. There was ever great love between the Eldar and the house of Hador. And the folk of Hador were the first men to forsake their own tongue and speak the elven tongue of Beleriand. Okay, so before we do comparison and contrast, we don't get much here, right? So the first thing to observe before we even observe Haleth's masculinity, right? The even more prominent thing, I mean, that's kind of hard to miss, right? Um, but the even more prominent thing... Um, is how short the story is, right? I mean, what's Haleth's story? Well, his story is he came into Beleriand leading a bunch of people. He was a hunter, and he remained in Syrian's Vale. They owned allegiance to no prince, and their dwellings were deep in the forest of Brethel. So they get situated in the forest of Brethel. Their independence is noted, right? Unlike the people of Hador, which he's going to go on to explain about, they don't become the vassal of any of the elven kings. So they live in Brethel, they remain independent, and they're led by 
a random dude named Halith about whom we know nothing apart from the fact that he is apparently a hunter. And so therefore his folk wander much in hunting. That's it. No further story. No, you know, uh, you know, battle at the Palisade and the tragic death of the leaders of this people. No wanderings across Beleriand. Um, no interaction with the elves. No, uh, that we're told, right? Uh, as far as we know from this paragraph, they'd never even met any elves. I'm sure they met some, right? But we never hear about how they interacted with them, apart from the purely negative piece of information they didn't swear fealty to any of them, right? Um, we certainly get no, um, you know, journey through Nandungorthab, uh, the survival of which was a marvel to many people. Yeah, no Doriath entry denial, all that stuff. Um, yep, exactly. Um, and yes, this paragraph really is three sentences. I think, no, four. Four sentences in the paragraph. Oh, no, wait, five. Yeah, we got a, but anyway, not, not very many. It's, it's, there are some long sentences in here. And actually, I'm glad you noticed that, David Michael, because um, that's going to become relevant in a few slides. Um, oh, just three for Haleth. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah, just three for Haleth. Um, so, apart from the fact so the future of Haleth, right? The future of Haleth and the Haladin is, on the one hand, they're never going to lose these things, right? Associations with hunting, though that's going to be de-emphasized a little bit. Um, their final settlement in the forest of Brethil and their independent, their independent spirit, right? Um, uh, their non-political uh, alignment with anybody else. Those things are totally going to be there. Um, but um, he's not going to stray from those things, but he's going to add a very great deal. And in the addition, Haleth is going to become a woman. Same name, which is itself interesting. Um, how many uh, how many of you the first time you ever saw the Peter Jackson films kind of were surprised when that young boy at Helm's Deep is given the name Haleth perfectly appropriate right good Good, uh, uh, good Rohiric name, good Rohiric boy name, Haleth, right? But if you knew, um, uh, if you knew the Silmarillion, it might have been a little bit of a jolt, um, right? Um, because we have a lot, we have a lot of associations with the name Haleth because she's a very memorable character, uh, and female in the Silmarillion, um. But it's a boy's name. Um, and yet, uh, exactly, Helm Hammerhand's son was called Haleth. That's why it's so appropriate. Um, and a fine choice uh, by Peter Jackson's crew to meet a young boy who is named after the son of Helm Hammerhand, the one who, one of the sons who did not live uh, through the fell winter and the siege. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, 
anyhow, um, so yeah, totally appropriate. But he's shifted. So without changing the name, which he might have done, he makes the character female and greatly, is going to greatly expand um, uh, expand her story. Um, uh, so, yeah. Is this another one of those examples that I was talking about? Can we see again, both in Isfin slash RFL and in Haleth, once again, Tolkien coming back at a later time, and I am now more and more convinced that it was phase two, that later stage, not the early um, burst of writing immediately after finishing The Lord of the Rings when he was still hoping to get the Silmarillion published, but the later rewritings when he begins to go back and add in the women and deepen, uh, and even in this case, transform. Take a character who is already there as a man, um, though a man who only gets three sentences, um, and turn it into a female character. And, you know, so he gender switches Haleth and then expands her story and then makes her story into a really interesting and compelling story. Um, so that's a fascinating little glimpse. Okay, let's keep going. Oh, come on. This is awesome. How awesome is this? In his last throw, Fingolfin pinned the foot of his enemy to the earth with Ringil, and the black blood gushed forth and filled the pits of Grond. Of course, we're at the end of the duel with Fingolfin and Morgoth. Morgoth went ever halt thereafter. Now, lifting the body of the fallen king, he would break it and cast it to his wolves. But Thorondor came suddenly... But Thorondor, coming suddenly, assailed him and marred his face, and snatching away the course of Fingolfin, bore it aloft to the mountains far away, and laid it in a high place north of the valley of Gondolin. There the eagles piled a great cairn of stones. There was lamentation in Gondolin when Thorondor brought the tidings, for the people of the hidden city were all changed to, for many of the people of the hidden city were Noldor of Fingolfin's house. Now Rochelor had stayed beside the king until the end, but the wolves of Angband assailed him. This is, of course, his horse, Fingolfin's horse. And he escaped from them because of his great swiftness, and ran at last to Hithlam, and broke his heart, and died. Then in great sorrow, Fingon took the leadership of the house of Fingolfin and the kingdom of the Noldor. Later penciled edition, but his young son, Findor, possibly, changed to Gilgalad, he sent to the haven. Um, okay. Um, so first of all, the second ride of, of, uh, Rachelor. Oh man, come on. That is, why did we lose that? Oh, the tragedy of the thing. Um, the detail about his horse faithfully remaining by him. So like there with Fingolfin against Morgoth, none stood by him. Except his horse, man. His horse stays with him uh, throughout. Um, and then only flees when Fingolfin is dead and escaping the wolves, runs back to Hithlam and dies of a broken heart. Whether instantly or... I mean, I'm kind of imagining him galloping into Hithlam and dropping dead. Um... 
but there might have been some time that passed. I don't really know for sure. Um, so I, first of all, just kind of love that detail. Um, this is another thing, by the way. Um, notice how this tracks with the very... We've commented... I mean, we've made lots of jokes about this in the past. Um, how uh, how much better the horses fare in The Lord of the Rings than in The Hobbit, right? I mean, uh, talk about your minor roles that you don't want to get cast in, right? Um, pony in The Hobbit. Worst gig ever, right? Um, uh, all of the ponies in the, the... The ponies in The Hobbit get at twice, right? Uh, so, I mean, it's... Uh, it's yeah, there are equine red shirts in the Hobbit, absolutely. Um, but, um, but he in the Lord of the Rings, we got. I mean, like you know, the survival of Bill the Pony, just the, the contrast between Bill the Pony and the Hobbit ponies, for one. Um, how much more interest he shows in the story of the horses. Um, even comparatively minor horses like Hazafel and Arad. Um, really cool. I mean, it's just, it's a very noticeable development of uh, Tolkien's storytelling tendencies. And here, coming right after The Lord of the Rings, right? The uh, the new world of, of uh, you know increased equine sensitivity in storytelling, right? Um, uh, we get this extra sentence about Rockalor that was never in any of the other stories. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yes, the great love of Fingolfin and Rockalor. That's the epic poem that you want to read, Meow? Yeah, you know? Um, I bet you I bet you there are minstrels who sang that song. Um, so that's really fun. Okay. What else? What else do we see? Well, here are some more changes that we get. Um, let's talk about the... Um, um, oh, is this the first mention of Gilgalad? Yeah, I think so. I think we're getting, we're getting uh, Gilgalad here. Um, remember, this is... All the stuff that we're reading in this book is after the Lord of the Rings, right? So he is now motivated to situate Gogalad in the history of the First Age, um, which he was not before. The story of the Last Alliance was an old story. It was part of the Numenor story when the Numenor story first began to emerge, which is a while back. I mean, it was in like the 20s and 30s that was emerging. Um, so the seeds of the, but like who exactly the identity of the last king of the elves. So like the mythic concept of the last king of the elves and this great king of men joined together in a thing, um, mythically called the last Alliance, which has all of this, you know, mythic, um, ramifications for like the passing away of the elder days of middle earth and everything else. Right. Um, anyway, so, that concept, the concept of the Last Alliance, is an old concept. The character of Gogalad in particular, as it's developed in The Lord of the Rings, is very, very much newer. 
Um, in fact, it wasn't too long before he wrote The Lord of the Rings that he was still imagining Elrond to be the Elven King um, who fought at the Last Alliance. Um, so, um, anyway, so, so yes, yes, we're getting, we should pay attention to, to, uh, to go and stuff. Cause that's all sort of, um, new here. And yes, he is kind of crowbarring Gilgalad in just as he's crowbarring Galadriel in who was invented during the writing of the Lord of the Rings. Right. Um, so there are a couple figures that he now is motivated to go back and find, you know, to, to, to read them backwards into the story of the first age without doing too much violence to the stories of the first age. So we've already seen him working Galadriel into the Thingol and Melian story. And now we're seeing him working Gilgaladin to the Fingolfin story. Um, okay. So yes, that is another interesting thing that we see. Um, why does he situate him with Fingon in particular? Well, Sylvan, the um, the impulse seems to simply be a patrilinear, patrilinear one. That is to say, um, line of the kings, right? Fingolfin, the high king, and his son Fingon, and his son Gilgalad, right? So to have Gilgalad, that first impulse seems to be to place the, you know, the mantle of high kingship as his destiny. He is in the direct line of Fingolfin, who has just had his very epic ending, right? Um, accompanied by his very epic horse. So that's... So we can see this seems to be his first answer to the question. So, where does Gogalad fit in? Here it is, right? Line of the Kings. Connect him with Fingolfin in the High Kingship from, 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 from the jump, right? Um... And he's even being sent away to the Havens as the obvious... He's like the spare king. He's being set aside, like literally set aside from the rest of the elves. Like the elves themselves. Fingon himself is setting Gilgalad aside to protect him, right? To make sure that he can inherit someday. Um, in case something, you know, on the offhand chance that there's some kind of hideous slaughter and that Fingon is going to be killed, um, well there shall still remain a high king among the elves in the line of Fingolfin, um, and he's going to be safe. So Gilgalad is like the spare, right? And is being treated like the spare. Um, so, um, yeah, yeah. Well, David, he's not forgetting about Turgon. Of course, the high kingship passing to Turgon, well, it's complicated. We'll get there. We'll get there. I Maybe. Well, yeah, we'll... we'll We'll talk about Turgon later. But yeah, no, that's... Um, remember, Gogalad wasn't there in the earlier versions. So the idea of the progression from Fingolfin to Fingon to Turgon was a natural one in the earlier versions. Like, there wasn't anybody else. Um, and anyway, ending up with Turgon being the High King of the, of the Noldor was very desirable for other story reasons, too in that in the latter phases of the narrative, that is the latter shape of the story of the first age of Middle-earth, um, Gondolin is the, is the key, right? Gondolin is the, uh, is the, the keystone of the end of the, of the arch, right? Of the end of the, 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 the latter days of the, uh, of the first age. And so that Turgon should be at the political and story plot center of that totally worked. Right, was totally important. 
Um, but um, anyhow, let's. Um, but we'll wait. We'll, we'll come back to Turkey. We'll come back to Turkey. Um, small point, but a little, but an interesting little one. Um, did you notice the way the description of Morgoth's wound is different here? from the one that's in the published Silmarillion. There's a lot here that we're getting, like, that we're recognizing straight from the from the final text. But there is a detail, which is not the way it's, it is in the published Silmarillion. Um, and that is, in his last throw, Fingolfin pinned the foot of his enemy to the earth with Ringo. Does anybody remember what it says? In the published text, in the published Silmarillion, what does Fingon do to Morgoth's foot? Do you remember? Anybody remember the verb? What does he do to it? A close Fanaro. He hews it. That's it, Spunky. That's it. He hews his foot. Um, where is he? Yeah, that's it. You guys are getting it on Twitch there, too. Yep, he hews his foot. Um, he's pinned under Morgoth's foot. Morgoth's foot is resting on his person at this point, right? Um, so, simply, I think this is Tolkien reading through this and being like, yeah, actually, that doesn't make sense. If a giant is crushing you to the ground with his foot. Uh, you could, you know, uh, you could Sheila's underbelly his foot, maybe, from underneath, right? Um, uh, if you wanted to transfix the foot with Ringo. But you couldn't pin it to the earth with Ringo. I mean, what, are you going to reach around the giant's foot and stab it down, what, through your own body and into the ground? Like, way too awkward. Like, doesn't really work. Um this is a very small thing, but I'm interested in it because how does Tolkien get himself into that problem in the first? I think this is a it's it's a legitimate problem, right? Which Tolkien corrects later on. He seems to think it was a problem too, that like Fingolfin couldn't have done that to Morgoth's foot, not from that position. Um, but I think he gets himself into that position because he was thinking as is his want, Tolkien, that is, was thinking mythically rather than practically. Like, what mattered first was the concepts, right? He, he, he loved the idea of the foot of Morgoth, you know, crashing down like a hill upon Fingolfin, right? After Fingolfin had, you know, stricken him with six wounds, uh, six other wounds, right? Um, so Fingolfin's defiance, the wounding of Morgoth, the uh, bearing down of Fingolfin to the ground, the last desperate strike at the foot and the Morgoth going halt ever thereafter, um, the visual image of Morgoth's foot being pinned to the earth with Ringo. These were all things that he liked, right? They don't all work together, but they're all cool. 
Um, and so the mere fact that he's going back later and saying, okay, I've got to make sure that this isn't just cool. It's also practical. Um, this is, um, uh, something, this is a trend which is more and more visible in his later work that he tends to be thinking more and more in terms of those kinds of things. This is, uh, this is Tolkien, the, I'm going to make a chart of, uh, of the phases of the moon, um, world builder, uh, speaking, I think, uh, there. Um, okay. Um, one other small detail and then I'll, then I'll move on. We got another cross out. Love me some cross outs, right? Notice what's happening in the cross out. Cause it's actually has big ramifications. It's not that this is the moment where this changes. We've seen other examples of this before, but this is a systematic change he's going through and making later on. Notice Christopher Tolkien says later changed to, like that's what the, the, the italicized later means. Um, he doesn't change it to this in the flow at the time. Like that change from will to wish in Turgon seems to be while he was writing the sentence. Um, here, he had written it, he had written, there was lamentation in Gondolin when Thorondor brought the tidings for many of the people, for, for the people of the hidden city were all Noldor of Fingolfin's house. That's what he wrote originally. Um, but then later on, he goes back and changes that to there was lamentation for many of the people of the Hidden City were Noldor of Fingolfin's house. Um, what has happened is the change of the demographics of Gondolin. That Gondolin now contains. And so you, you may remember where we saw this before. Um, it, we were told that Nevrast, um, Turgon's original city, was a pure Noldoran city. And then that got changed. And in fact, um, you may remember in the published Silmarillion, we're told almost the opposite of that. That among the people of Turgon, that Turgon's kingdom was one of the places in all of Beleriand where there was the greatest mingling of the Sindar and the Noldor. Um, so he didn't, this isn't just a little change that he makes, it's a total reversal of this thing. Now, so what? So what? What does that show us? Why is that interesting? What is interesting to me about that? Gondolin, Gondolin is enormously important. Gondolin looms very large, not quite as large as Baron and Luthien or as Turin Turambar. Those are the two biggest stories, but Gondolin casts a long shadow in Tolkien's legendarium. And of course, Gondolin seems to have come first or come close to coming first, right? The, the, the original fall of Gondolin story was one of the very first things that he wrote, you know, probably the first, um, sort of official story of his legendarium that we get. So Gondolin had, there's a kind of primacy in Gondolin, um, of its significance in his stories as a whole. So this kind of a shift shows that in his imagination, <clears throat> Gondolin, which is so important, so dominantly important, um, such that the fall of Gondolin is the critical event in the end of the First Age. Um, 
he's changed that. In his head, that was a Noldor story. Exclusively. Straight up, explicitly, Noldor only. Um, and now he is making it into a Sindar-Noldor combined story from the start. Right? He's going back and rewriting the whole lead-up to Gondolin, and then Gondolin itself, in order to emphasize the Sindar... Gondolin belongs to the Sindar as well. Turgon is the king. It's Turgon City, right? Um, he's going to become High King of the Noldor. So it's a very Noldoran city still, but the Sindarin have a stake in Gondolin. The Sindar have a stake in Gondolin from the beginning. And that is... I think a very interesting and important development, especially in the context of what we saw at the beginning of the Grey Annals, of the way in which he has imaginatively invested himself in the life of the Sindar and the experience of the Sindar, um, and the whole mythic story of the Sindar through Thingolan and, and Melian, right? Um, that story is going to come to a tragic end, the story of the, um, you know, this, the Eden of Middle-earth, right, um, under the divine Melian, uh, who is like the genius loci of all of Beleriand, and, um, uh, and you know, Thingol, who is living the dream, right, who is, uh, is doing the Valinor thing properly, right, Joining himself to the Valar and marrying, you know, one of the, uh, uh, you know, one of the gods and but staying in Middle Earth and instead making that into like, you know, rule of Middle Earth and breathing out joy and all that stuff. Right. Um, that story is going to come to a tragic end. But now we get this like other parallel outcome story for the Sindar. The Sindar are going to survive. Gondolin is going to be their refuge, too. Gondolin is going to be the portal through which the Sindar story continues, um, just as it is the portal for the survival of so many of the Noldor as well. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. The Fall of Gondolin was written from hospital um, uh, when he came back with trench fever. Yeah, so sort of during the war. Yeah. Um, for more on this, uh, John Garth's uh, Tolkien in the Great War, um, he talks a lot about the fall of Gondolin um, and uh, really excellent stuff there. Okay. Um, let's keep going. Here we go again. Right? It's, uh, it's Christmas morning again. We get a paragraph crossed out and replaced by a, uh, by a replacement paragraph. This time, the backstory of Hurin. So this is a huge deal, right? This is the introduction of Hurin, who is the beginning of the Turin story, right? So, okay, let's do it. Version number one. It is said that in the autumn before the sudden flame, Hurin, son of Galian, was dwelling as foster son, as the custom was among the northern men, with Haleth, and Handir and Hurin, being of like age, went much together. And hunting, Handir is Haleth's son, of course. Um, and hunting in Syrian's vale, they found by chance or fate 
later changed to, they found, by fate or the will of Olmo, the hidden entrance into the city of Tumladen, where stood Gondolin the guarded city. There they were taken by the watch and brought before Turgon, and looked upon the city of which none that dwelt outside yet knew aught, save Thorondor, king of eagles. Okay. What's the core story? The, the, this, this initial version of Hurin's backstory, what do we get? Notice, notice we, 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 we get a cross out, right? Oh man, so cool. Um, notice the cross out. Um, he went from uh, Hurin is hunting in Syrian's Vale, found by chance or fate. So he's doing his coy, like chance if chance it, it were kind of thing, right? Um, but then he doubles down. He's like, no, I'm not going to be coy about this, right? Um, they found by fate or the will of Olmo. So he explicitly brings Olmo into this, right? Um, uh, so I'm going to explain a mechanism, and chance is right out, right? Okay, so Hurin, by, uh, for a reason which has nothing to do with chance, finds the hidden entrance into Tomb Laden, where Gondolin stands. And they're taken in, and he sees Gondolin, and he's like, wow, okay, all right? So yeah, there's some... Really interesting things here. We got Handir and Hurin, right? Um, so, and that's not the story we know from later on. Okay, so let's read the second version, which, surprise, surprise, is longer. Um, there might be examples of occasions when Tolkien rewrites a passage like this, and the second version is shorter than the first one. But they are few. They usually uh, grow in the retelling, which is one of the fun things about them. Okay, second version. It is said at this time, it is said that at this time, Hurin and Hur, the sons of Galion, were dwelling with Haleth, added later their kinsmen, as foster sons, as the custom then was among northern men. And they went both to battle with the orcs, even Hur, for he would not be restrained, though he was but thirteen years of age. And being with a company that was cut off from the rest, they were pursued to the ford of Brithiach, and there they would have been taken or slain, but for the power of Olmo, which was still strong in Syrian. Therefore a mist arose from the river, and hid them from their enemies, and they escaped into Dimbar, and wandered in the hills beneath the sheer walls of the Chrysigrim. There Thorondor espied them, and sent two eagles that took them, and bore them up, and brought them beyond the mountains to the secret vale of Tumladen and the hidden city of Gondolin, which no man else had yet seen. Whew. All right. So, um, what do you notice? Much more story. So, okay, first obvious thing, right? Um, poor Handir uh, gets the boot, right? And we've got Hurin and Hur. Um... I the character of Tuor exists, obviously, in the fall of Gondolin story. Um so it's not like this is the invention, I don't think, of Huor's character, but the addition like adding who Huor into this story. And not only adding him, he doesn't just get replaced. I mean Handir doesn't do much in that first version, right? He's just the companion that Hurin was with. Um, but um, the replacement of Hondor by Huor 
it's not just a substitution. We get more about him, right? Like the fact that he went to battle at the age of 13 because he could not be restrained, right? At the age of 13, who are is like, let me at him. I'll tear him apart, right? Um, so we don't just get the replacement. We actually get some characterization there from who are. Um, notice how, notice the emphatic, just as we got that one alteration in the first paragraph from chance or fate to fate or the will of Olmo. Let's make sure we know that it's fate, but also that Olmo probably took a hand in this, right? But we don't know how. So they just, they just get lost. They're hunting in the first version. They're hunting, they get lost, and somehow, maybe it was luck, or maybe it was the will of Olmo, or probably it was fate, um, they end up finding the hidden entrance, which is, you know, you're supposed to not be able to do, so that's kind of a big deal. Um, but, um, yeah, we're going to say, uh, no, 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 no. Let's have Omo uh, take a clearer hand in this. Um, Omo's fingerprints are all over this thing the second time through. We can't miss it at all. Let's, instead of just having them wandering off hunting, let's have them fighting a battle in which they are miraculously saved. Not by the eagles, which are in fact going to come in, but straight up by Olmo's power, which is strong in Syrian. This mist rises up and hides them, and they are spirited away. So they are, their life is saved. They are being actively directed by Olmo. And then... Oh, there they go. They get spied by the eagles, and the eagles bring them beyond the mountains into the secret vale of Tumladen. Which, of course, also has the um, um, has the the result of um, meaning he doesn't know how to get in. He doesn't know where the entrance is. Right? So there is no chance that Hurin can lead anybody at any point directly to the gate. To Gondolin, because he's never seen it, right? He he took the he took the uh, um, he took the the express route into Gondolin. Um, okay, so yeah, so there's there's no accident, there's no by chance of chance you call it. It is a miraculous intervention by Olmo, and then a doubling down on miraculous intervention by having the eagles sweep down and bear them up. And bring them into Gondolin. So the their arrival in Gondolin has it is not only a stroke of fate, which is implied even in the first version, um, but is an active intervention. Almost got plans. Almost up to stuff. And um Olmo is up to stuff <clears throat> is kind of the subtitle of the Gondolin story, right? Um, so that sort of tracks here, the connection who are, and so let me, let me, let me be more explicit about the significance I see there. Hurin's connection to Gondolin 
might in the first version and even to some extent in the published Silmarillion version seem a little bit incidental. Um, like not a central part of his story, really. But it is clear from the direction of the changes that Tolkien is making here by him deciding, no, 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 no. Omo has to be not just involved, but this has to be an Omo story, right? Um, that shows that this incident is clearly a part of Omo's master plan that recontextualizes this moment of Hurin's backstory into an early stage of Olmo's master Gondolin plan. Remember, Olmo's been... Gondolin's been all about... Um, uh, all about um, Gondolin from the beginning, right? He's the one who gives Turgon the dream that he should make a hidden city, brings him to Tomb Laden to show him where to build the hidden city, and is going to later on be sending messengers, tells him, right, shows up in person to Turgon in Nevrast, and is like, okay, time to pack up and go now, folks, right? Um, it, it's an almost story from beginning to end. And then like, oh, and let me give you the measurements for the armor you're supposed to weave, because later on I'm going to send a messenger. Trust me, it'll make sense later. Um, and, so, you know, so the anticipation of the two-war story, all of that. All of that is the almost story from the beginning. Tolkien wants Hurin and Huor's visit to Gondolin to be a part of that Olmo story. Um, and so that's interesting. Let's watch what happens with that as the story of Hurin develops um, here and the story of Huor as well. Um, Huor, again, isn't conceptually a new character, and that Tuor always did exist. Um, but uh, but Huor's his own role definitely develops. We're watching it develop here, in part. All right. Um, this was just a little fun fact that I wanted to make sure you didn't miss, because it's pretty awesome. Um, remember in The Lord of the Rings, when Faramir says... The Rohirrim come from men of the Elder Days who were friendly with the Elves, but not from the Three Houses of the Edain. So he's like, they, they, they have nothing to do with the Numenorians. They're not from the Three Houses of the Edain, but they're from men who were friendly with the Elves. And I remember being a teenager reading this, and, you know, when I finally read the Silmarillion. I was super confused. I'm like, Faramir, what are you on about? Like, who are we talking about? They're, they're, you know, they're the, the Adine, and they're the wicked Easterlings. Who are the Rohirrim related to? If they were elf friends and not the Adine, who are we even talking about? And of course, here's the answer. Uh, but Maedros, knowing the weakness of the Noldor and the elf friends, whereas the pits of Angband seemed to hold store inexhaustible and ever renewed, made alliance with these new-come men, and gave them dwellings both in Lothlan, north of the march, the march of, of, uh, of Maedros, that is, and in the land south of it. 
The two new chief now the two chieftains that had the greatest followings and authority were named Bor and Ulfang. The sons of Bor were Borlas and Boromir and Borthond, and they followed Maedros and were faithful. The sons of Ulfang, the Swart, were Ulfast and Olwarth and Uldor the Accursed, and they followed Cranthir and swore allegiance to him and were faithless. Footnote. It was afterthought that the people of Ulfang were already secretly in the service of Morgoth ere they came to Beleriand. Not so the people of Bor, who were worthy folk and tillers of the earth. Of them, it is said, came the most ancient of the men that dwelt in the north of Eriador in the Second Age and read in after days. In other words, that's where the Rohirrim come from, from the people of Bor. The, of the two groups of people who allied themselves with Maedros for the Nirnaithornoidiad, the ones who did not betray them. Not of the three kindred of the Adain, not the people of Haleth, not the people of Hador, not the people of Beor, um, but not the people of Ulfang the, the Accursed either. Um, also, Brelanders, I suspect, yes. Yes. Um, well, the people of Bor are Easterlings, Easterlings in the sense of that they come from east of Beleriand, which is everywhere, <laughs> right? Everywhere in Middle-earth is east of, is east of, uh, of Beleriand. So, um, I don't take the word Easterling, I, I mean, I don't know how serious, I mean, like how, how Easter are we talking about here, right? Um, are we talking about from what in later Middle-earth we would call Rune? Or, I mean, like, the Grey Havens is kind of east of, of, uh, um, of Beleriand here. So, um, yeah, yeah. But, um, but yes, I do suspect uh, the Brewanders are also probably involved there. Um, the Dunlendings... Maybe, but I think not necessarily the Dunlendings, um, because it says that dwelt in the north of Eriador in the Second Age, um, and the Dunlendings are south, in the south of Eriador. So I don't think he's necessarily asserting a relationship, but I mean, there may be, eventually, or go back far enough, and I'm sure they are, um, but both Bree and, um... Um, the um, you know blanking I hate it when this happens the land where the Rohirrim lived it was the Aotheod that's the word I was blanking on um, the people of the Aotheod before they came down before Aeol the Young brought them down um, them and the Brelanders I think would both count as living in the north of Eriador um, but um, but anyway at the very least, I feel confident that this is the lore that Faramir has in mind when he makes that comment about the origins, um, that rather offhand comment about the origins of the uh, uh, of the the Rohirrim. Okay. All right, um, Baron, the Baron and Luthien story. I tried to be. Um, I tried to be selective and not go through the entire Baron and Luthien story together here. 
because um, we've had many other opportunities to do that. There's just a few passages that really jumped out at me, and here's a huge one. Um, the departure of Finrod from, from uh, Nargothrond. Then Finrod changed to Inglor, cast off his crown, and made ready to go forth alone with Beren. But ten of his most faithful knights stood beside him, and Edrahil, their chief, lifted the crown and bade the king give it in keeping to Oradreth, his brother. But Celegorn said, Know this, thy going is vain, for could ye achieve this quest, it would avail nothing. Neither thee nor this man should we suffer to keep or to give a Silmaril of Theodore. Against thee would come all the brethren to slay thee, rather. And should Thingol gain it, then we would burn Doriath or die in the attempt, for we have sworn our oath. I also have sworn an oath, said Felagund, and I seek no release from it. Save thine own until thou knowest more. But this I will say to you, son of Feanor, changed to Kelegorn the Fell, by sight that is given me in this hour, that neither thou nor any son of Feanor shall regain the Silmarils ever until the world's end. And this that we now seek shall come indeed, but never to your hands. Nay, your oath shall devour you, and deliver to other keeping the bride price of Luthien. Whew. Um, so, um, that's a lot. Um, both, um, both Kelegorm Kelegorm, who is still Kelegorn with an N, and I'm not going to make a big deal of that. Um, notice many of the sons of Fanor's names are still in flux. Kelegorn, Kronthir, um, Mydros with a D, right? Um, yeah. Anyway, um, they're, um, they're kind of chatty here. We got some, uh, we got some, we got some spoiler action going down here. First, we get heavy foreshadowing of the fall of Doriath, right? We would burn Doriath. Should Thingol gain it, then we would burn Doriath or die in the attempt. Or, you know, his grandson, one or the other. And then you get Finrod, excuse me, Inglor, Felagund, um, just straight up telling us what's going to happen at the end. Not only notice, not only does he say the stuff about like you're not you're not ever gonna end, any of you end up with Silmarils, um, but he says this Silmaril. Um, so by the way, Baron is totally succeeding in this quest, right? He just drops that, right? Like, um, we're totally getting a Silmaril. It's gonna happen. Take it to the bank, right? With the sight that is given me in this hour, I can tell. We're totally, you know, book it. We're getting a Silmaril. But the Silmaril that we get is never going to come to your hands. You can forget about it. You can do whatever you want. You can threaten as many kinslings as you want to threaten, burn down as many forests as you want to burn down, set fire to the Sindar Garden of Eden if you want, but you're never getting a Silmaril. You're never getting this Silmaril. This Silmaril shall be delivered the bride price of Luthien will be delivered to other keeping. Right? Um, so. 
<laughs> there we are. There we are, right? Now, um, it is not uncommon. I said that very, very rarely do we see Tolkien rewriting a passage and it comes out shorter. And that's true. It's very uncommon. But there is one way in which that does sometimes happen. And that is when he's not rewriting, but actually revising. The distinction being not I'm going through the whole story and I'm rewriting it all, but I'm just going through and I'm making corrections. Like I'm not writing a new document. I'm, you know, crossing things out and writing things in the margin of the original one. Right. Um, when he, when he does that, he often reduces his impulse when he's first working it out. Like when the, when the story kind of first comes to him, uh, which once people start talking often happens, um, they usually talk a lot. They spell everything out because this is him seeing the story for the first time. Um, this scene has all of the earmarks. Now, he knows what's going to happen to the Silmaril, to the Bride Price of Luthien, right? Um, Arendel, you know... Um, Arendel and the pimping of his ride is already very much in his mind for the future, right? He knows the fate of the Bride Price of Luthien. Um, that one, that's locked in. Um, but, yeah, I don't even know whether or not, as Fanaro's Pizza was asking, um, would that mean that Maglor and Mytheros never get the Silmarils in this version? I think it's possible. I think that he is not anticipating that moment yet here um, and is possibly one of the reasons that this passage got changed, right? That this prophecy of Finrod gets taken out. But as I say, um, it's not uncommon for him to have these kinds of plot ideas. Um, and then he... Um, uh, then when he goes through and revises later, he's like, mm, let me not spell everything out quite so heavy handedly as that. Right. So that's a trend that we can that we notice that lots of times uh, in the uh, in the the history of the Lord of the Rings. Um, so it's the one way in which sometimes things do come out shorter is when he decides to cut down on some of their spelling everything out. And boy, this. uh um you know the oath duel, Maureen, as you say, the like the, the oath duel and the foreshadowing fight, right between uh, between Finrod and and uh, and and uh, Caligorn is uh, is intense. It's intense here. Um, one more. Oh, this is so much fun. One of the things that's also fun to see. Here's one of the things that I was enjoying about this synopsis of the Baron and Luthien story. Tolkien is clearly trying to restrain himself. This is one of the places, the Baron and Luthien section, is one of the places where it is most obvious 
in answer to the question, what does Tolkien think he's doing? It's one of the places that makes it most clear that he has not yet decided that this is just going to be the Quinta. Um, and that's because he's skipping over, but, you know, this is clearly not designed to be a full version of the Baron and Luthien story. It's a weird kind of hybrid. The summary of the Baron and Luthien story that he gives in the Grey Annals here is too much detail for just um, a, a pure synopsis, right? So in this year, the Baron and Luthien stuff happened. You know what I'm talking about, right? You know, he could have done a version of that, right? Um, which for the sake of just keeping an annals to keep track of dates, that would have worked, right? Um, Want to know more about the Baron and Luthien story? You've got several other options, right? Um, go, uh, go read the Quintus Silmarillion, or for extra credit, go read the Way of Lathian. Um, but he doesn't do that. He spells out almost every stage of their story. But he does not tell the whole story. And in fact, you will have noticed that many really important and prominent moments in it get really slimmed down and skimmed over. Like, the, he didn't even mention the song duel between Finrod and Sauron. Right? He just like, and then Finrod gets taken captive. Right. I mean, there's, there's, there was no hint at the awesome song battle between Finrod and Sauron, which is such a big deal that in later versions he quotes the entire poetic version, you know, as we get in the published Silmarillion from the Way of Lathian. Um, anyway, so he's doing this sort of weird middle ground where he's not just giving a one paragraph placeholder for the story, but he's definitely not telling the whole story. There is no way that he intends this retelling of the Baron and Luthien story to be anybody's stand-in for the whole, right? But yet, he's writing a very shortened version of it. So what does he think he's doing? Why, why do it in the middle ground? Well, listen to this. Um... See if you can notice the patterns, um, the the sound. Notice the rhythm of this text. Then Baron and Luthien fled, but at the gate they found Karkaroth once more awake, and he leaped upon Luthien, and before she could use any art, Baron sprang before, and would daunt the wolf with the hand that held the Silmaril. But Karkaroth seized the hand and bit it off, and straightway the Silmaril burned him, and madness seized him, and he fled away, but his howls roused all the sleepers in Angband. Then Luthien knelt by Baron, as he lay in a swoon, as it were, of death, and all their quest seemed in ruin. But even as she drew forth the venom from Baron's wound with her lips, Thorondor came, with Landreval and Gwaihir, his mightiest vassals. And they lifted up Luthien and Baron, and bore them south, high over Gondolin, and set them down on the borders of Doriath. Do you hear the way that his sentences are structured? Notice... It reminds you of a bit from the Lord of the Rings text. It certainly does. The bit that it's reminding you of is the charge of Theoden into the Battle of Pelennor Field. Um, and that is exactly correct, JJ. Um, and what you are hearing that is reminding you is Tolkien's shift into a radically paratactic 
syntax in order to tell this story. Um, paratactic syntax, there's paratactic syntax and hypotactic syntax. Hypotactic, a hypotactic sentence is one with subordinate clauses. Um, that like explains what's going. A paratactic sentence is a series of simple statements joined together by conjunctions only. Um, and notice how this goes. We get a few subordinate clauses like then Baron and Luthien fled or then Luthien knelt by Baron as he lay in a swoon as it were of death. We get a few hypotactic elements in this paragraph, but almost everything is strung together by ands and buts. Then Baron and Luthien fled, but at the gate they found Karkaroth once more awake, and he leaped upon Luthien, and before she could use any art, Baron sprang before, and would daunt the wolf with the hand that held the Silmaril. But Karkaroth seized the hand, and bit it off, and straightway the Silmaril burned him, and madness seized him, and he fled away, but his howls roused. Right, again and again and again. Thrandor came, and Gwaihir, and they lifted up Luthien, and bore them south, high over Gondolin, and set them down on the borders of Doriath. Exactly, uh, David. And the hosts of Mordor wailed, and terror took them, and they fled, and died, and the hoofs of wrath rode over them. That is exactly the passage that this reminds you of. Um, one of the most remarkably paratactic paragraphs when he's really when Tolkien really is deliberately modulating into that mode. Now um, what's interesting about this? I was really struck by this paratactic paragraph in this dramatic moment, right, at this important moment in the Baron and Luthien story. Um, and what it tells me, again, remember he's doing neither thing. He's not just giving a four-sentence placeholder. Then Baron and Luthien happened, and it's pretty cool, and you can read about it elsewhere, but whatever, it happened in this year. And the full prose version where we get the whole story. He's not doing either one of those things, so what is he doing? What does he think he's doing? What is, he, what is Anno accomplishing? Right? And I think we get a hint in this paragraph here. This is a different mode of storytelling. This is... It's not the whole story. This is not like the novella version of Baron and Luthien. What this is, is more like the version that a bard might retell. When someone calls for, like, the short version of Baron and Luthien, right? Tell of Baron and Luthien. But, you know, we've only got, like, half an hour, so, you know, don't give me the whole lay of Luthien, right? But, um... Tell of Baron and Luthien. And we get this um, uh, shortened but still substantial version. And just this, this breaking into parataxis um, in this moment. I mean, of course, partly it's just he, he likes this kind of mode. Um, and it tends to happen in fast-moving action, right? Um, but... Um, but to me, it feels like a glimpse of this sort of other kind of frame, right? Here's another way of telling the Baron and Luthien story. It's not pretending to be the full story, but it's still a version which is, which is different and which, which, which will hit you differently and will emphasize some different things. Um, 
but the parataxis here again, I, 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 you know, I talked about a bard, you know, telling the story or singing the story, because it feels like that, right? I mean, this kind of rhetorical performance that he's doing here, um, this kind of lapse, you know, not lapse, transition into parataxis, is um, uh, very deliberate, very noticeable. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Right, it's like Baron and Luthi in the musical, Emily. Yeah, exactly. Let's um, let's do the let's do the the musical theater version of Baron and Luthien. Uh, yeah, yeah. Why not? It's not the musical theater version. There'd be way more, you know, uh, dance numbers and uh, and way more songs uh, if we got that version here. But it is it is like that kind of a that kind of a shift, I think. And so he does seem, in other words. So back to how does this help us answer the question of what does Tolkien think he's doing in writing the annals? Um, well, one of the things then that he seems to be doing is in fact wanting to give parallel versions of some of these stories, but parallel versions in different modes, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and that's part of the like textual and historical richness of these documents. So when the fortunate public receives the thousand pages of Silmarillion material bound together with the thousand pages of Lord of the Rings material, all in a big red leather case, which is what Tolkien wanted to do, um, but for some reason the publishers didn't want to do, because they would have had to charge, like, you know... They they would have confronted readers, you know, the British public, with the choice of purchasing that book or like buying a house, essentially. But um, anyway, um, what he's you know the 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 readers would have gotten this kind of a um, of a varied, you know, multi version kind of text. Um, okay, last point, and then I'll let you go because it's getting late. Of course, you noticed the eagles at the end. Who picks up Baron and Luthien? Landreval and Gwaihir pick up Baron and Luthien, right? The use in particular of Gwaihir's name. Um, Landreval, you know, that could just be recycling. You know, like when Landreval is the name of the, you know, one of the, one of the um, eagles that picks up Frodo and Sam... Of course, laying yet another layer of parallelism between Frodo and Sam and Baron and Luthien. Um, but um, uh, anyway, he um, you could say maybe he's just recycling eagle names, right? It, it may, it's not necessarily the same, Landreval, right? But why here? No way, man. And especially since, remember, he's writing this right after he wrote The Lord of the Rings. There is no chance... There is no possibility of a chance that the Gwaihir who picks up Luthien and Baron is not the Gwaihir who carries uh, Gandalf around in The Lord of the Rings, right? Same eagle, similar job, right? Um, the continuity that Tolkien is building here. But notice what this means for the eagles in the Lord of the Rings, 
um, when you're trying to answer, um, you know, that question that still hangs around like a bad case of herpes, um, why didn't the eagles just carry them into Mordor to destroy the ring? Um, the, like, clearest answer to that question is here, right? We can see here very clearly the position that Gwai here and the eagles are getting. We, we'll remember that in The Hobbit, the eagles are just, you know, the Lord of the Eagles is just a, a bird, right? I mean, they, you know, hunt sheep. They quarrel with woodsmen. Um, you know, they're not big fans of the goblins. Um, but they're not noble birds. They're birds. At the end of the day, they're birds, right? Um, just from internal evidence alone in the Lord of the Rings, it's pretty clear that Gwaihir the Windlord is operating at a different level than the Lord of the Eagles in The Hobbit. That um, just as Tolkien's idea of characters like, say, Gandalf have developed considerably uh, since the beginning of The Hobbit, um, so the character of Gwaihir, uh, the Ringlord, Ringlord, Windlord, very different. Um, Gwaihir, the Ringlord, we don't even want to think about that. Um, anyway, the character of Gwaihir has also developed and changed a very great deal, right? Um, and I, um, it's, it's very clear him placing Gwaihir himself back into the context of the first age, that Gwaihir is explicitly one of the mightiest vassals of Thorondor. Um, that when we see Gwaihir as the Lord of the Eagles in the Lord of the Rings, he is plainly, now explicitly, the heir of Thorondor of old. And the connection that Thorondor has with Manwe, uh, and the role that Thorondor plays um, in the stories of the Silmarillion, all of that is being mapped forward onto Gwaihir. Um, it is very, very clear that the eagles are not birds, just birds, that they are Maiar, right? That they are spirits of Manwe and... Um, um, yeah, I, I think that's very, very cool. Even the mere fact that that Gwai here is obviously millennia old, right? That he's been around since Baron and Luthien and is still around to help pick up Frodo and Sam uh, at the eruption of Mount Doom shows that he's not a normal eagle, right? Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, yep, yep. Anyway, so, um, <laughs> yes, Gwaihir the Ringlord is a pretty good reason for the Eagles not to simply fly Frodo to Mordor. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, yes, David Michael, I do think if we're trying to reconcile, as Fan Aros Pizza was saying, um, reconcile the Hobbit Eagles with the Lord of the Rings Eagles, um, our best bet is that um, Bilbo himself would have blushed to reread that part that Bilbo just didn't understand. Um, uh, but anyway, yeah, it's, um, it's tricky. It's tricky. Um, 
it is, well, Jeremy, you say, is it a retcon thing or an intentional thing? It's intentionally retconned. I mean, yeah, like he's, he's, he, remember, he's written The Lord of the Rings. So everything Gwai here does in The Lord of the Rings is out there, right? Um, that Eagles swooped and picked up Baron and Luthien has been part of the Baron and Luthien story since before he wrote The Lord of the Rings, right? So um, the only innovation here is he's connecting those two dots. There were always eagles picking up Baron and Luthien. Um, now that eagle is identified with that. And by the way, you realize what this means? Allow me to blow your mind for a second, because it blew my mind when I first thought about it this way. Frodo and Sam getting picked up by the eagles isn't a reference to the Baron and Luthien story. Baron and Luthien getting picked up by the eagles is a reference to the Frodo and Sam story. Right? Or at least that's how it gets turned by having Gwai here involved. Right? Um, he is now deliberately patterning, he's deliberately connecting the Baron and Luthien story within the Baron and Luthien story to Frodo and Sam, and not just the other way around. Um, kind of fun. They absolutely are in the same tale still, Yarrow. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, um, we know nothing about the relationship between Thorondor and the other, his vessels. Like, whether he's a sire like Draugluin of the werewolf spunky, I don't know. We, we, we're not told anything about that. Though the eagles were always plural. Like, there was always a bunch of eagles, and Thorondor was always, even back in the Book of Lost Tales, um, when he was called Sorondor with an S. Um, uh, there were always a, an indeterminate number of eagles, but plural number of eagles. And Thorondor was like the one named eagle among them, basically. Okay. All right. It is late and we're over time. Um, so we almost got to the near Arnoidiad. We came very, very close. We flirted with the near Arnoidiad um, because we were talking about Midros and uh, Ulfost, but um, anyway, we'll do... Uh, a little bit more of that next time. I'm going to continue in this same pattern, and of course, we're soon going to get into the Turin story. Um, so we will uh, we'll see how far we get into that. Um, my suggestion, my reading suggestion for this time, is somewhat ambitiously. Not really, because not that many pages, actually. Read to the end of the Turin story. So that is uh, in my hardcover edition here, page 103. Um, so when you get to um, when you get to the tombstone, right when you get to the epitaph of Turin and Neonor, right there. Then right after that is a section that's labeled commentary. So let's stop. We'll talk about the commentary afterwards. But um, uh, so read through to the end of the Turin story, and then we'll do uh, we'll do as much of it as we can um, next time. Anyway, thanks everybody. Um, fun discussion as always, and. Um, I will, uh, uh, I should be, I see no reason, <laughs> I see no reason now why I should not be able to do class next week. But then again, I've been surprised recently, so we'll see what happens. But anyway, I'm planning on next Wednesday. Thanks, everybody. Good night. See you soon. <laughs>